Scent Magazine's belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. And welcome to Belaboured number 73. I'm Michelle Chen with my co-host Sarah Jaffe. Now, we all know McDonald's as the quintessential finger food joint, but it seems workers may have some reason to fear that their fingers winding up in your food. Yes, adding to the slew of allegations of exploitation, uh, wage theft, harassment, union busting, uh, racism, and other abuse, you can now add health and safety violations to the list of grievances nailed to the Golden Arches. A group of McDonald's workers with the Fast Food Workers Campaign have filed 28 workplace safety and health complaints with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and various state agencies. They charge that McDonald's drove them to work at such speed and intensity with such lax regulatory standards that workplace health and safety was undermined to the point that oil burns from handling hot grease became routine. One worker, Brittany Berry, testified about being told to put mustard on a bad burn, then having to be rushed to the hospital for emergency care. Another worker was advised to spread mayo on a burn wound. Lest you think that this pattern is just sort of a random old wives' tale, a survey of fast food workers found that nearly 90% had suffered some type of injury, about 8 in 10 have been burned on the job, and a whopping one-third of all burn victims say that their manager, quote, suggested wholly inappropriate treatments for burns, such as including condiments such as mustard, mayonnaise, butter, or ketchup instead of burn cream. Occupational injury risk is, of course, notoriously high across the restaurant industry, both in and out of the kitchen. But for fast food workers, the combination of low wages, erratic scheduling, and a lack of safeguards, as well as the sheer size of the industry and the monopolistic nature of the top fast food companies, uh, altogether are creating a massive public health hazard, not just for workers, but for consumers as well. The allegations are part of a larger effort to hold corporations like McDonald's accountable for the working conditions at the restaurants. As you may know, they've historically sought to uh, profit from this model of having multiple franchise branches that they are technically not in charge of as employers, so they don't have to take direct responsibility for the conditions there. So far, as we've reported before, workers are still fighting to force McDonald's just to acknowledge its role as a joint employer. Barry, after recounting how she was told to slather condiments on her wounds, said it plain. This is exactly why workers at McDonald's need union rights, so we have a voice to make the company take responsibility for the dangers in its stores. Scott Walker, Wisconsin governor, big brave battler of citizen protesters, continues to earn the ire of workers everywhere. Last week, Walker signed into law the No Rights at Work bill that the legislature had passed, despite having promised repeatedly, while taking away rights from public sector workers, that the private sector would be left alone. Whoops. Not that most of us believed the man who made attacking school teachers a selling point, but, you know. Wisconsin is now the 25th state to allow workers to gain the benefit of union representation without having to pay anything towards the costs of representation. As we discussed on our last episode, such misleadingly titled right-to-work laws don't prevent unions from forming. They just incentivize workers not to join, thereby draining the unions of funds that they need to survive to do more organizing and to do political work. 
Wisconsin workers aren't giving up yet, though. As I wrote for Salon, shortly after the bill's passage, labor groups joined with Black Lives Matter activists who were protesting the death of Tony Robinson, a young black man killed by police in Madison, for a day of action challenging Walker on his series of policies that have made life worse for working-class Wisconsinites. They connected the poverty be inflicted on Wisconsinites of color through Walker's budget cuts and attacks on unions with the state violence against black bodies and Wisconsin's sky-high incarceration rate of black men. The 2011 uprising in Madison kicked off a series of protest movements that have put income inequality and even, dare we say it, class struggle back on the agenda, and it looks like Madison isn't quite ready to give up yet. And while Congress continues to stagnate and gridlock over immigration reform in Washington, there's been some grim news emerging from the front lines of the immigrant labor struggles in California and across middle America. First, a group of Filipino workers who came on temporary labor visas, known as guest workers, are trying to take their employer to court over a slew of allegations related to massive wage theft, fraud, and trafficking violations. In the legal complaint just filed with the support of Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Los Angeles, the workers came to work at a fashionable L.A. bakery on an obscure visa program known as the E-2. This visa allows wealthy foreign investors to invest, quote, substantial capital and develop businesses in the U.S., and, of course, to bring their own employees. Though these workers are supposed to be professionals and managers, uh, the workers filing the lawsuit say that they were pressed into doing manual labor and drudge work under extremely abusive conditions, which they never signed up for, obviously. They were actually promised $2,000 a month, and they ended up making sub-minimum wage and were routinely denied overtime and even the required rest breaks. Even worse, the workers were subjected to abuse and intimidation and sometimes threatened with being sent back to the Philippines or threatened with retaliation against loved ones back home if they disobeyed orders. The lawsuit comes on the heels of several citations by state labor auditors, but it comes too late for the tens of thousands of guest workers who are subjected to similarly exploitative conditions each year. A new report by the Government Accountability Office found numerous loopholes and regulatory failures with two other major guest worker programs. One of these is the famous agricultural program for farm workers and another lesser known program for industrial and service workers. The report found that across the system, both the Department of Labor and the Department of Homeland Security have failed to adequately safeguard against abuses such as third-party recruiters charging workers prohibited fees, um, not providing enough information about a job when required, such as the wage levels that people will be paid, or pro providing false information about the job conditions. Now, the Department of Homeland Security, which is supposed to collect information from employers, does not actually electronically document detailed job information or make this data publicly available, according to the Government Accountability Office. And so it's extremely difficult for advocates to verify these job offers, even see if there's any valid uh, work being provided to these people. Meanwhile, the employers who are actually cited for labor violations might still be falling through the cracks. Many are penalized just by decertifying them temporarily for a couple of years, but no one really provides enough follow-up to see if they've gone back and started violating again. 
Uber and the UN are going to bring about gender equality. You heard it, folks. By hiring one million women, the car service company Uber says it's going to contribute to global empowerment for women. I wasn't aware that what was holding me back was my lack of the ability to use an app to monetize my car by driving around strangers, but apparently it must be true since UN women put its stamp of approval on this blatant marketing ploy. Uber's touting its job creation for women comes at a particularly interesting time for the company, since, as we've discussed before on this podcast, it considers its workers not employees at all, but independent contractors responsible for their own cars and costs. And last week, two separate California judges ruled that lawsuits against Uber, along with its competitor Lyft, for misclassification of workers can go forward. We've discussed misclassification before on this podcast as well, often in reference to port truck drivers. Essentially, the Uber and Lyft drivers are arguing that because Uber and Lyft set the terms of their employment and can fire them for not meeting those terms, they are employees, not independent, and are eligible for compensation for their costs. The Uber lawsuit also claims that Uber is telling customers that tip is included in the price and yet not actually handing over the full amount of that tip to the drivers, thereby, you know, wage theft. The judges ruled that the suits should be heard before a jury, which would decide once and for all, apparently, whether the drivers are employees. The attorney representing these drivers won a similar lawsuit in FedEx in 2013. All these companies try to figure out how they can reduce their labor costs, and classifying workers as independent contractors allows companies to save massive amounts of money they're not paying for benefits in workers' compensation and payroll taxes, she told reporters. So maybe those million women ought to hold out and see whether the jobs Uber is offering can really be considered jobs then. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. What is the Trans-Pacific Partnership? It's hard to know since, like many trade deals, this massive plan with ramifications for workers around the globe, not to mention environmental protections that affect our ability to deal with climate change, is being negotiated almost entirely in secret. We figured it was about time we discussed it here on Belabored, as the conversation is heating up and protests are being staged around the country to try to slow down the process and make it more transparent. Joining us is Celeste Drake, Trade and Globalization Policy Specialist at the AFL-CIO, who knows as much as anyone outside of a few locked rooms knows about the TPP. Thanks, Celeste. So I guess we have to start at the beginning. Um, can you tell us what is the Trans-Pacific Partnership and how does it different from previous trade deals that people might be more familiar with? Sure. So Trans-Pacific Partnership is a trade and investment agreement. And from what we know from what the United States trade representative says, and that's our agency responsible for negotiating trade deals, and from text that has been leaked about the trade deal, it's not, in fact, that different from prior trade deals the U.S. has been involved with, including NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, or the more recent agreements with Peru, Colombia, and Korea. And what that means is it's a little bit about trade, which is the reduction of tariffs and quotas uh, when countries are sending goods one way or the other. But it's also a lot about a whole bunch of other things, like what are the rules to allow foreigners to invest in a country and what rights do those foreign investors have? It's about what kind of regulations uh, countries are allowed to have on 
their food safety, on their financial services sector, on service providers, on a whole bunch of other things. So the fact that it's very similar is actually what's quite troubling to workers and environmental advocates and consumer advocates and a whole bunch of folks who say, wait a minute, these past deals have been trouble. This looks like it's going to be trouble too. So can you talk about how specifically this uh, new proposed deal will um, might affect U.S. workers and in what industries or sectors? Sure. Again, we don't know everything about it because it is being negotiated in secret. And that's really unfortunate and really diminishes our voice in the process. But uh, for American workers, it's going to put uh, American workers into more direct competition with the new partners in the agreement. And that includes Japan, Vietnam, Brunei, Malaysia, and New Zealand. The other countries in, in the agreement we already have free trade agreements with, interestingly enough. Um, but most kind of that group of those new partners are Vietnam, where the minimum wage is less than a dollar an hour and workers have absolutely no right under the law to form a union, to collectively bargain, all of these things that are that are very troubling and that limits their ability to raise their own wages through collective action and, and negotiation. Um, in Brunei, there are lots of problems with human and labor rights. There's only um, one union in the oil sector, and that seems to also be heavily government-influenced. Uh, nobody else has the right to form a union. And in Malaysia, a troubling report just came out last year documenting forced labor in electronics industry. So putting U.S. workers in closition with these workers without lifting up their rights and their ability to act for themselves is going to put downward pressure on U.S. jobs and U.S. wages, and in fact, you know, could put a ceiling on what workers in these other countries are able to accomplish. So what we're looking for are rules that would ensure workers are free to exercise their rights, and hopefully it's going to end up bringing up wages of workers in other countries. And just to clarify, there's a labor chapter in this as well, isn't there? There is a labor chapter, and that's something that, looking over the, the trend line of prior agreements, starting with NAFTA, uh, NAFTA was pretty weak. There were labor provisions outside the agreement, turned out to be not very workable, not very enforceable. Over time, those provisions have gotten better. But even now, they do not protect worker rights in the same way that investor rights are protected. And, and here's an example the text from the most recent agreements that was highly touted as an advance, and it was an advance, still allows governments to, at their discretion, ignore petitions about labor commitment violations or delay them indefinitely. And we have examples of this current administration, which is known as a labor-friendly administration, um, it's delayed six years in a labor rights case against Guatemala and it's delayed three years in a labor rights case against Honduras, and there's been no effective action yet in either country to really defend these workers. And in both countries, there is not just firing workers 
for trying to form a union. It's not just refusing to pay workers the minimum wages that they're owed, but it's also threats and violence against these workers, which have a very clear effect, which is to deter workers from trying to stand up and say, wait a minute, this is the law, you have to obey it. And unless there are terms in the agreement that force governments to take action when there are labor abuses, it's not enough to just have the words on the page. You've got to have you know, clear and decisive action for workers. Well, since the U.S. already has pretty open trade relations with most of the signatory countries, what are politicians saying is the benefit of this, you know, either for businesses or workers? How, how are they even selling it to the public? That's a great question. In our opinion at the AFL-CIO, their, their pitch isn't particularly convincing. Uh, the, the, the backers of the TPP continue to talk about its value to open markets and tear down trade barriers. But as you have rightly described, we already have open markets with more than half the countries. So that's why it's not totally convincing. In some cases, they're trying to change the rules that there are even additional stringent provisions to go after these so-called non-tariff barriers. And these are regulations a country might have that a particular exporter looks at and determines, oh, that makes it harder for me to sell my product or service in country X. The problem with non-tariff barriers is they're not always very clear cut. One exporter's non-tariff barrier is to a worker or a consumer um, or someone who cares about the environment in the other country, it's a vital protection that's keeping their food safe or their workplace safe or their water clean. So these things to us are not things that should just be swept under the rug as quote unquote market opening measures, but really talked about and debated by the American public and say, are these the rules that we want to set up that sort of ratchet everything in a deregulatory direction rather than have a clear balance between, hey, governments have the right to protect their people in, in lots of ways. And do we always want to set it up so that the right to export is sort of the, the more important value here? And so that's we think what really should be talked about is there will be some market opening in the TPP. But is that market opening worth not adequately protecting workers, not adequately protecting the environment, giving investors extreme rights through what's known as the investor to state dispute settlement system, and really sort of creating the wrong values that raise up or influence and diminish the voice of working people. Right. President Obama in particular campaigned pretty heavily back in 2008 on renegotiating old trade deals that have rightly kind of a terrible reaction in this country. Um, in part, of course, that was to sort of hang NAFTA around Hillary Clinton's neck. But however many years later, here he is pushing very hard for fast track authority on this deal. What's with the flip? How is he in particular arguing that this is different than these trade agreements that well, he hasn't renegotiated, but that's a whole other story, I guess. You'd really have to ask him, and I would be interested <laughs> in his answer. But I, I will say his trade representative, Michael Froman, is pitching the TPP as the promised renegotiation of NAFTA. Because uh -huh. Canada and Mexico are in it. And 
you know, what we say is, wow, when we said renegotiate NAFTA, we mean, let's add uh, nine more countries to the mix. We were looking for something very, very different. And I'd say we just have a fundamental disagreement. Again, the USTR is saying we're we're making the labor chapter slightly better. We think they're making the environmental chapter slightly better. And then hanging around this the neck of the slightly changed model, saying it's a 21st century deal, it's a gold standard, it's the most progressive ever. But there's a very little that's publicly known that can back that up. I mean, making small changes around the edges isn't getting at the heart of what was wrong with NAFTA. And the heart of what was wrong with NAFTA is it was really about rights for the global corporations that wanted to invest internationally um, strongly enforced and really kind of lip service to labor in the environment very weakly enforced. And that continues to be a problem in our view. The new proposed trade deal, like NAFTA, will apparently involve some kind of so-called investor state uh, tribunal system to resolve trade disputes. So, you know, how is this legal mechanism supposed to resolve um, trade issues, and can you tell us about how it works and the powers that it gives to corporations? Again, it's called Investor-to-State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. I think part of the clunky, boring name is to get people to stop listening after they hear the name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really misunderstood and hard to understand and seems so foreign to the way our justice system works. So often the first time people even hear about it, they don't believe you. And what it does is it's based on a premise that governments will discriminate against foreign investors. And because governments will do that, they need, they can't go through the national courts, which will be discriminatory if they ever have a complaint. They need their own private separate system, which won't discriminate against them. And that's it's a good story, and apparently the U.S. negotiators believe it, but we have asked for evidence. You know, where is your data that shows that governments regularly discriminate against foreign investors? Because from what we can tell by participating in UNCTAD, the, the U.N. Development Agency, what happens at the WTO, what, you know, watching these things, countries want foreign investment. They want investment because it builds factories, it creates jobs, it generates economic activity. So it seems that even the the argument for it is is pretty hard to justify. And what happens is, well, I'll give an example. A U.S. company named Metalclad uh, invested in Mexico after NAFTA. It bought a piece of land where the prior Mexican owner had been turned down twice for a permit to build a hazardous waste landfill. Metalclad bought it away, applied for the same permit, was denied again, and then through a series of lobby, the federal government and the state government and on and on, um, built it anyway, even without the local building permit, and then sued, used this system, this ISDS system, to go to a private arbitration panel and argue that it was a taking, their land had been taken unfairly, they didn't get fair and equitable treatment, which is a very vague standard that only exists in international law, not in domestic law. All of this, and at the end, they were awarded $15 million 
in money from Mexican taxpayers. And this is the kind of thing, if, if you think about your own situation in the United States, these are the kind of decisions that local governments make all the time, building, zoning. And if the investor who has been denied zoning or the permit or the license or whatever it is that investor wants can then use these U.S. taxpayers to pay up because their rights as an investor were abused. And this is just not a right that the same type of business right next door that's owned by an American access. It's only available to the foreign investors. And if you think about it, particularly for smaller, poorer, developing countries, the pressure of having, you know, what sometimes is a global, huge corporation pressuring them can be too much. And they might just reverse the decision, repeal the law, whatever it is. Chevron, Mobile Oil, Occidental Petroleum have used the system and have won under the system. So it's it's not a level playing field. And, it, and the governments don't have a right to bring the investors to these tribunals and complain about the behavior of the investors, whether it's mistreatment of workers or pollution of the water or what have you. So th this is one of our big complaints, and it's about the incentives. And if it's giving more power and influence to the elites, the economic elites um, in each country, and not those same rights to you know average working people, that's a problem, and that's one of the reasons why we think these deals have contributed to economic inequality, and that's in the U.S., and it's a global trend. So this uh, particular deal appears to have special provisions that affect um, pretty drastic reforms in the public sector and all of the countries involved. And can you talk about how public sector uh, labor rights and public services might be affected, whether it's things like infrastructure and utilities or things like just public protections for workers? Absolutely. These trade agreements, again, it's sort of little known because we think of them as sending widgets across borders. They cover services trade as well as goods trade. And what the U.S. style of agreement to do is to say every service is committed to the rules of the agreement unless you specifically list it as being excluded. It's called a negative listing. And that actually breeds, A, breeds more mistakes, because if you had a positive list and you only put up the service sectors that you wanted to commit to the trade rules, you're only going to clearly put up what you want to trade with and not accidentally omit something. It's also a system where every newly invented service is then committed. So imagine when... Uh, NAFTA was done, all of the services that didn't exist in 1993, you know, particularly around uh, internet and internet sales and eBay didn't exist in 1993 and, and Facebook didn't exist in 1993 and all of those things. And that includes not just private services, but public services. So governments have to specifically exclude public services if they want them out of the agreement. And there's a general exclusion for public services that, in fact, isn't very effective. And it typically says services permitted in the context of government authority are not covered by this chapter unless they are provided on a commercial basis or provided in competition with private services. If you look at that exclusion, it's pretty weak. 
because public schools are in competition with private schools, um, even public buses, right? That's a commercial basis because you pay the fare to get on the bus. So there are very, you know, the United States has private prisons. We have some public electrical generation. We have some private electrical generation, some public water services, some private water services. So almost nothing is automatically excluded. And then the rules say, even if you don't want to commit a particular sector to the rules of the trade agreement, if you experiment with privatization, you've opened your market and that opens it up to the rules of the agreement. And if a government says, wow, this experiment with privatization is a gigantic failure, which happens a lot, um, and they try to take it back as a public service, if there's now a foreign competitor offering that service, they have a basis for a complaint. So what we say is governments need to retain the right to handle public services in the way that they choose. If they want to privatize them, we as the labor movement is probably going to fight that, but that's an option that government should retain. But they should also retain the right to renationalize, to make clear that it's this is the quality, these are the places where it must be provided. You know, not handing over these choices to private, just private parties, because what happens is often you have substandard services provided in sparsely populated areas, in areas of high poverty, all kinds of things that government needs to retain the control over. So we think that's an issue. And the other problem with public services, you didn't ask about, but I'll just throw it in there. When you have large job loss, particularly in the manufacturing sector, which the U.S. has seen in Michigan and Ohio from prior trade agreements, manufacturing jobs are good for the folks who work in the factories, but there's also a multiplier effect. They tend to be better than average wage jobs, and folks then patronize restaurants, dry cleaners, other businesses nearby. When the factories are gone, a lot of the main streets are gone, and that really affects a tax base. So it can actually devastate communities by drying up their funding sources to provide schools and libraries and parks and roads and bridges and pothole repair and all of those things. So again, we think that you know some of these treatments, the rules are just far too restrictive and limit the choices that citizens can make about the kind of country they want to live in. You mentioned all of the technologies that have been invented since NAFTA, and there's a lot of concern I'm seeing about the intellectual property issues in this deal, regulations that would supersede existing copyright laws, possibly infringe on internet freedoms. Um, can you tell us about some of those? Sure. So intellectual property is a chapter that's been included in U.S. trade agreements since the time of NAFTA. And, you know, on the one hand, it makes some sense. You know, particularly if you think about workers in the entertainment industry, many of whom are represented by unions, their jobs are pretty unsteady. And a lot of what they get as part of their income and into their health and retirement accounts comes from residuals. So on the one hand, you can see, oh, it's a good idea to try and stop some of the counterfeiting and some of the illegal downloading that prevents these workers from getting income over time. So, so there's a, re a reason that it's there, that it's a good reason. What happens is sometimes, again, when you look at who's really influencing the U.S. negotiators, they can take a good idea 
and get it way out of whack and far out of balance. And that's when we look at a good example of that is how they treat the patent rules for pharmaceuticals. And the and we know this from leaked texts from the TP, the U.S. seemed to ask for some things that were even far beyond U.S. law for the patent rules and rules that might promote evergreening of drugs. And if you think about, again, the countries that we're trading with here and the poverty that exists in Vietnam, the poverty in Malaysia, the poverty in Peru, and you're putting rules into trade agreements that can delay or sometimes prevent legitimate competition from coming onto the market, that's not economic decision. That's really a public health decision. That's a human rights decision. So it's not, it's okay to protect uh, intellectual property rights, at least from the labor movement's perspective, but you've really got to balance interests, and it's certainly not okay for these trade agreements to be just sort of profit centers for big pharma. And the U.S., we have asked over and over again for the U.S. negotiators to go and reevaluate their positions and make sure they're doing the right thing. And they seem to have heard our message on the medicines issue, which is quite interesting because um, AARP, the senior lobby, which is pretty powerful here in Washington, D.C., um, got involved and started to understand extreme U.S. proposals and started weighing in. And it, at least we know the administration has heard our message. We still don't know how it will come out in the TPP, but they're well aware that there are many interest groups that are watching and waiting and saying, do not jeopardize public health just in the name of doing a favor for big pharma. So speaking of doing favors for big pharma, who is set to benefit from this? Who are sort of the specific corporations that are pushing for this? Who is set to win big if this goes through the way it looks like they want it to? It's interesting that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Business Roundtable, the Financial Services Roundtable, Big Pharma, the Farm Bureau, these and other huge trade groups are already out there saying they're for it, They ha- we have to pass it, they've got to get it, it's vital. And it's interesting because they also haven't seen the whole agreement. So they have a lot of confidence, obviously, that it's going to go their way, that it's not going to be reformed in a more pro-worker, pro-planet way. And that's unfortunate. And, and you know, they have been the big winners, kind of the economic elites and the global corporations from NAFTA onward. Of course, there are always some workers that that, but to us, that seems sort of by happenstance. If, if workers tend to do well under a trade agreement, it's incidental uh, because in general, the agreements are rigged. They're skewed to the benefits at the top and the folks, all the folks are either incidentally benefiting or they're being harmed and harmed in very serious ways. If, if you look at 20 years of wages for the U.S., the bottom 90%, the wages have been largely stagnant for for 20 years. And trade is not the only cause of that, but it's certainly part of it. When the game is rigged to say there will be benefits from trade and they're going to be skewed towards the top, that means there's less that's a benefit for the other folks to share. And that's a problem. And that's why we're saying, let's look at the whole model 
don't add a few words to the labor chapter and the environmental chapter and tell us it's different and we should trust you. We want to see the text and we think it should be public and publicly debated. So in terms of the current treaty negotiations, we still really don't know um, what in the end is this trade deal is going to look like. So talk about the process that's still ongoing and what can still be changed um, and what's really at stake um, with Fast Track and what, what the status is of the agreement currently. Sure. The TPP has been under negotiations officially since early 2010, and there are unofficial talks going back on that to the Bush administration. The AFL-CIO unions, others have been heavily into that time and trying to push it in the right direction. We've been hearing that it was finished for, for nearly two years now. They've been on the verge of completing it. One of the things that's keeping it from being totally finished is the fact that the president lacks fast track authority, also known as trade promotion authority. And it, fast track is a, is a bill that typically Congress passes it and gives whoever is president authority for the next four years or the next five years, whatever the term is, to go and negotiate as many trade agreements as he or she can and bring them back to Congress. Now, it includes a set of instructions. These are the things we'd like you to achieve in the trade agreement, but there's no accountability process in the bill. And then whatever that trade agreement is, if it turns out to be good for workers, bad for workers, good for public health, bad for the environment, it gets voted on uh, within 90 days. It has to go through Congress. It cannot get bottled up in committee as a regular bill can. It can't be amended uh, in the committee or on the floor as a regular bill can. It can't be filibustered as a regular bill can. So as a result, no trade agreement has ever been defeated under fast track procedures because it really it takes out all the breaks in the process. It takes out all the leverage. All members can do is vote yes or no. And often, again, very quickly because it's 90 days. Think about the uproar over the Affordable Care Act and all the people saying, read, stop and read the bill. The trade agreement is going to be somewhere between a thousand pages and two thousand pages, and it's very unlikely that all of the senators and members of Congress who vote on it will have read the whole thing. So we are fighting because as TPP is on the verge of completion, and we're still saying you need to pull out investor state dispute settlement. It's a, it's a rigged, illegitimate process. We don't believe in separate but equal, quote unquote, justice systems, take it out. And that could happen if we push them hard enough. We, we continue to push them on the intellectual property rules and access to medicines. That could continue to change. We continue to say you have to have a legitimate process that prioritizes labor rights so that workers everywhere can exercise their freedoms and raise their own wages through collective action. If we can get rid of fast track, we can get better trade deals and maybe we can get one that labor can be behind because we want to be, I mean, we're for trade. Everybody wants their Colombian coffee or their Argentinian wine or their French cheese or whatever it is. It's not about putting up walls on America, but it's about who sets the rules and who benefits from the rules. And we're looking for a different set of rules. And to do that, we've got to stop fast track. And that's urgent. The fast track bill looks like it's going to be introduced on 
April 13th when the Senate comes back recess. That's what we're hearing here. And so we've got to make a lot of noise in every state, in every congressional district, Democrats and Republicans, to see members of Congress and senators. Fast track is an automatic, illegitimate process. You've got to oppose it. And it's not about whether or not you like trade. It's about having an open process where people's voices are heard and not just the voices of the economic mm-hmm. elites. Mm-hmm. Going back to, you know, how this is um, sort of uh, um, explained to American people, a lot of the political speculation around this has involved containing China's economic influence, so-called sort of a containment of uh, China's global spread in terms of its, its trade influence. Um, can you talk about the geopolitical factors in this deal and, and whether or not sort of the specter of China is being used to kind of scaremonger around the deal? Um, how does that work? With respect to China, you've hit the nail on the head. There certainly is some scaremongering going on. And as President Trump has said just yesterday, the pattern in every trade debate since NAFTA has always been the back as a job creation tool, something that's good for workers. And as those arguments start to fall apart because we see there's no evidence for them, the rhetoric almost always changes to, well, we need this for geostrategic reasons. It's going to be good for our national security. And and I think if you go back to the debate 20 years ago over NAFTA, China played a role in that debate. Look, in terms of trade, China is cleaning our clock. There's no question. The U.S. has a bilateral goods trade deficit with China um, of over $300 billion just last year. And it's been going up and up and up repeatedly, uh, really since the mid-90s. And and so, yes, there's an issue, and we have to figure out how to do that, but is another trade agreement that seems essentially to incorporate the same rules really the way to deal with our trade problems with China? And the America's labor movement says, no, it's not. Uh, one of the things that China does, I mentioned currency money earlier, China manipulates its its currency. It controls the value of the yuan so that the dollar is much stronger than the yuan. It makes Chinese goods cheaper. It makes American goods more expensive. If we don't have rules in the TPP about currency, how will we get China to change its, its ways? So, you know, and China's not even in the TPP yet. The administration keeps saying they could join, they might join, we'd love to have them join. Well, if they are going to ever join, we have to have rules that would address our trade problems with China. Secondly, China has been in the WTO, the World Trade Organization, for well over a decade, about a decade and a half now. So many of those China continues to violate. So there's also this question of, is the Chinese government really willing to submit to these international trade rules, or is China's approach to trade we're going to do what we're going to do. Such a large economy, we can continue to, to keep cheating. And even if we get caught and adjudicated a trade cheater, it's almost like playing whack-a-mole. It's hard to keep up. There are so many ways that they skirt the rules. So rather than setting up a system that has these things that we know are bad for workers, like insufficient uh, commitments around labor rights, extreme corporate rights in the form of ISDS, not dealing with currency, it's, and then calling it 
a 21st century standard somehow going to bring China in line? Let's, again, break apart that old stereotype and figure out what do we need to do with China to make this work? Because a lot of this really, you know, who's benefiting? Is it necessarily Chinese people? It's certainly been poverty alleviation China and enormous economic growth over the past 20 years that has been good for China as a nation. On the other hand, you have extreme inequality in China that's not good for social stability. You have a total lack of labor rights, similar to Vietnam, uh, where workers don't have an efficient way to work together and, and bargain with their employers. So the folks really benefiting from uh, the rise of China are these same global corporations you know, that I've talked about trying to set the rules of international trade. So the real way to kind of get after some of these issues is to talk about how do we create international rules that bring power back to the people, that are democratic, that allow democratic choices about, you know, reigning in the excess of global corporations and not allowing them to write their own rules. And that's a more difficult conversation, but it's something that I think would really help the people of China, the people of the United States, and get these these global corporations who are driving the train be passengers and not just the drivers of global rules. You keep leading right into the question we're going to ask next. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so our, our final question is sort of, how do we fight against trade deals like this without succumbing to these xenophobic arguments about American jobs? And, and what does international labor solidarity look like around trade policy? Um, that is a hard one, but it's looking better. I've been here at the AFL-CIO working on trade policy issues for nearly four years, and I was in Chris helping Congress work on fair trade issues for almost five years before that. And one thing that, that I find interesting is that a lot of folks coming saying, hey, you know, I think the AFL-CIO, you're getting your message right. You know, 20 years ago with NAFTA, I think a lot of people did hear sort of um, nationalism and the argument sounded like they were against Mexican workers rather than against a model that would allow abuse of Mexican workers. And AFL-CIO has a much closer relationship now with the labor movement and with the Canadian labor movement. And that's something that we can count as a success, although it was sort of an unforeseen benefit. But we're members of the International Confederation, which has labor movements from, you know, nearly country in the world joining in, regularly talking to each other about this sort of skewed model where the global corporations seem to write the rules and they, they don't want to be restricted by laws, national <clears throat> regulations, national courts. And how do we really fight that? And obviously, to, to say, oh, it's going to be easy and success is on the horizon would be silly. I mean, <laughs> we're going to be out, outspent, you know, in this um, and outgunned by the international media, which tends to, you know, unfortunately diminish voices of working people and, and put up the voice of economic elites. But we're starting to catch fire in really small ways, you know. The, the idea of ISDS, which, as I mentioned earlier, people don't even seem to believe the first time around. It sounds so crazy. That's being reported and talked about in the Washington Post, which has successfully, I think, been able to ignore for the past 20 years since NAFTA. Um, we're seeing in Europe with 
there's an agreement negotiation with Europe uh, right now called the TTIP. It's about four years behind where the TPP is. But folks in Europe, particularly in France and the UK and Germany and Austria, they are up in arms about ISDS and corporate influence and all of this. And so we're starting to make these inroads. And I think it's just a matter of folks have a lot of things to do. They have to go to work. They have to care for their families, right? There are everyday struggles. And then there's a lot of really pressing political issues that people care deeply, about, whether it's right to work laws or minimum wage laws or, you know, massive electronic surveillance or you know, whatever. And sometimes trade just seems, oh, it's esoteric. It's going to happen anyway. I like the benefit of trade because I can get a $1.99 t-shirt at Walmart or whatever folks are thinking. But it really does impact you know, all these things that we've talked about. It impacts the quality of our democracy. And it's just a matter of continuing to sort of beat the drum that if there's anything that you care about from your job, your income, the environment, the safety of the food you put on the table for your family, you know, how enduring are these protections that you put in place to keep your water clean? That comes back to trade. People have to care. Uh, we have to make it part of the conversation and say to people, look, there's you are really have more in common with the folks in Vietnam, in Mexico, in Guatemala, in China that you think. Because if U.S. corporations are allowed to go over there, invest over there, build the coffee maker or whatever it is they're building, um, treat those workers in a terrible way that disrespects their rights, pushes down their wages, keeps them from getting fair benefits, that eventually comes back on you. You might see it in the first place as, oh, now there's a cheap coffee maker. But it eventually is pushing down your wages because we're all in this together. And if wages anywhere are suppressed, American wages are suppressed. And we have to say, you know, the enemy here isn't the Chinese writ large. It's the global corporations who are gaming the system. And the Chinese elites certainly might be benefiting from it, as are the American elites, as are the Chilean elites. So we all have to kind of see that, you know, it sounds a little you know, Marxist, whatever, but, you know, we workers across borders have interests in common and our strength is our numbers and our intelligence and our persuasiveness and our willingness to stand up for our own rights and stand up for ourselves. And I think we just need to continue to do that. That was Celeste Drake. She is Trade and Globalization Policy Specialist with the AFL-CIO, talking about the free trade deal, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now for ARG, I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces we've read recently that we wished we had written but did not. So my pick this week is by Lee Harper in Quartz. It's called Meet the Creative Underclass of the Tech Industry. So as an online editorial worker, Harper details the strange world of tech labor and the curious questions surrounding the meaning of the buzz phrase, women in tech. That sounds like a great movement to elevate the role of women in this burgeoning elite industry. And yet, for many of the tech workers who are toiling silently on the lower rungs of this sector, creating so-called content puts them in a position that's closer to the precariat of underpaid temp workers and marginally employed contract workers than to the likes of Silicon Valley moguls who are hobnobbing it with the founders of Google. 
So she explains the ecosystem of the tech scene. Quote, in order to explain why I hate the phrase women in tech, I need to bring two terms that stand in for tech soft labor pool, content and community. Content is the intelligible skin of text and images worn by coded platforms. The vulgar aim of this web economy is to monetize your attention, and content layers the cynical bones with meaning and ideas. Community is the real social world built around the website or platform and often the human voice in the face of the digital economy. This includes variants of customer service, which in startups very often have the word community built into their title. And in the core of the industry, the hierarchy is clear. By and large, women and non-technical men are the creators of content and the tenders of community. So what she's saying here is that these people who help run the online public sphere from behind the scenes are often overlooked labor-wise, and they are relegated to behind-the-scenes roles as contract, part-time, or freelancers. Harper acknowledges that she could be doing other low-wage work, she says, but her part-time work online is basically my choice, she says. Were I a graduate student in any other part of the country, I would probably be bartending or tutoring. So in a sense, she has autonomy, but this is largely shaped by her geography, and she's essentially just making do with what the economy offers people in her social position. She has little control or influence over her working conditions or the broader system that she serves. Her piece isn't a rabble-rousing class warfare screed, though I kind of wish it was, um, but it is a sobering perspective on the ambivalence around the idea of women in tech uh, and the dangers of fusing identity and political activism with this highly commercialized society. Tech is not so unique, it's just a reflection of the time that we live in. She writes, the valorization of women in tech too often relies on a definition of, quote, tech that is at once overly narrow and overly broad. Most of what we call tech is really a vehicle for more effective advertising rather than a proper technological advance. Working for one of these companies is not a golden ticket into the middle class, just as how, on the macro level, the shift from the industrial to the digital has not generated a salve for old economy drudgery and exploitation. The illusion is created by a narrow understanding of what counts as a tech worker, limiting praise to those women who most resemble the archetype of the male founder or the brilliant data scientists, so-called ideal users. So this essay makes me think of how people a generation ago might have hailed the so-called service economy as, uh, or the knowledge economy as a kind of a panacea to our economic ills. Um, it would overturn the traditional industrial capitalism, lead to uh, better, cleaner working conditions, a more educated workforce, and uh, yes, of course, more opportunities for women. But as long as there is oversized corporate power in the economy and in our political system, as there has persistently been throughout all the eras of American capitalism, um, the old structures of hierarchy and exploitation will just keep rebranding themselves unless we start thinking of new ways, not just of producing content or even communicating with each other online, but in connecting with each other as workers and ultimately as communities. My ARG for this week is actually from the end of last year, but I just discovered it and it's fairly evergreen, so I'm talking about it anyway. The piece is by Brian Dean at Contributoria, and it's called Anti-Work, A Radical Shift in How We View Jobs, and jobs at the end there has little quotation marks around it. 
We've talked before on this podcast about the shorter hours movement, about the need for leisure time, even the universal basic income. What Dean does in this piece is frame anti-work as, quote, a moral alternative to the obsession with the jobs that has plagued our society for too long, and, quote, a cognitive antidote to the pernicious culture of hard work, which has taken over our minds as well as our precious time. Sounds good, right? He details the way hard work became a moral virtue that justifies punishment of non-workers or those perceived as insufficiently hardworking. A mindset that allows us to blame the poor for their poverty, the low-wage workforce for its low wages, and result in the kind of tweets that I get from time to time telling me that if McDonald's workers who were on strike just worked harder, they'd get promoted and have great careers. Work as obedience is what Dean calls it, quoting George Lekoff, and it's incredibly hard to escape. He also notes the way that leisure itself is often framed as something you have to earn through, you guessed it, more work. And on top of that, of course, is the way we have to earn our right to consume the products we are told will make us happy. Enough. Anti-work is, Dean says, what we do for the love of it. What would we all do if we didn't have to earn a living? It's not simply about idleness, though. If you want to be idle, by all means, go ahead. He writes, the point of anti-work is to think of, quote, good human activity outside the dominant cognitive frames of market value and obedience. If all of this sounds interesting to you, there's a link to the piece, along with everything else we've mentioned today, over at the Descent website. And as always, I recommend Kathy Weeks's book, The Problem with Work, as the best thing written on this subject. And that is all for this week's episode of Belabored. As always, you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at a hashtag belabored with your questions, your thoughts on trade policy, if you are an Uber driver who is or isn't covered by the lawsuit, or if you just want to talk about how much you hate Scott Walker. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org and join us online using hashtag belabored.